This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and my guest tonight is the wonderful Danny Shapiro, who is here at Books and Books in our Carl Gable store, right before um, a reading talk that she'll be giving tonight, which is a celebration of her new book, Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love, a book that I read, I loved, I cried at. It's a book that moved me in so many different ways. But I want to, there's just so much to talk about with Danny, who I want to admit is an old friend. But the first thing I want to ask, really, and, and maybe this is a way in, is to say that if you had found out about what you found out in this memoir, how would it have changed the previous books that you wrote? You mean if I had known earlier? Yeah. Or if I had always known? Yeah. None of those books would exist. <laughs> I mean, one of the strangest things about inheritance and about this moment and this book which is my 10th book is that it's like everything led to this I was digging and digging and digging in in all sorts of different ways excavating whether in my fiction or in my memoirs and then and then the lights blinked on yeah and we got a little ahead of ourselves too because why don't you tell us a little bit about inheritance I mean you know um Danny is Jewish and she's blonde and blue-eyed and she says in her book um, that I have always felt all my life I had known there was a secret what I hadn't known the secret was me why don't you talk about that just a little and how it relates to inheritance so um, about two and a half years ago my husband decided to um, do basically recreational DNA testing. Um, he was interested in just finding out more about third cousins and fourth cousins and a way of connecting with his parents and, you know, finding out more about his family tree. And he asked me if I wanted to do it too. Um, and I so easily could have said no. But instead I said sure. And um, and so he sent away and ordered these DNA uh testing kits from one of those companies and um, and then we, we went ahead and did that, spit into the plastic vial and sent it off in the mail and when um, my results came back um, they were initially just surprising but the surprise quickly turned to well actually not so quickly it sort of slowly turned uh, to uh, concern puzzlement and then finally, um, shock um, at what I discovered. And so it, it, it began with the discovery that I was, in fact, 52% Eastern European Ashkenazi. Um, 
which didn't really make any sense given my parents because they were both Eastern European Ashkenazi. Um, but I thought, well, maybe all Jews are. Like, maybe that's just how it works. Maybe we're all just kind of mongrels. Uh, I'm 99%. Yeah, exactly. No, because that's not how it works. like Scandinavian. Uh huh. Yeah, exactly. So, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that this was this breakdown was very strange. Or I thought maybe they're just making a mistake. I I, I kind of kept having that feeling for quite some time. Um, the next thing that happened was a first cousin materialized on my Ancestry.com page and that first cousin who was identified only as initials and also as male and was like blue icon um, was a complete stranger to me and I, I know my first cousins I know them all and this wasn't one so then I thought well now they've really they're just making mistakes right and left and, um, but it became enough of a confusion or a concern and also Michael, my husband, has a background as an investigative journalist, and this was totally sending off flares for him, more than it was for me, because I couldn't afford for it to. He could think more clearly about this than I could. So he suggested that um, I get in touch with my half-sister. I have a much older half-sister from an early marriage of my father's, and I had recalled that she had told me that she had done her own DNA testing in a, a number of years earlier. Um, so I emailed her. We hadn't really been in close touch. I emailed her and asked her if she had her results, and she did. And she sent me, it's just a file. It's like called a kit number. She sent me her kit, and then I had my kit. And there is a site where you can actually upload two, it's just a long series of numbers. You upload two kits next to each other, and it will tell you how closely related um, these two kits are. And that was the moment that uh, my life changed. Um, and that was the moment that it, ch it changed from puzzlement into just kind of profound shock and bewilderment um, because it showed that we weren't sisters. We weren't half-sisters. We weren't related. Our nearest common ancestor, you and I are probably more closely related than I was with her. So uh, our Scandinavian part. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then with Michael's background, you were able to, it pretty much... Um, it pretty much moved very quickly. It after moved that. very quickly. I mean, I, I understood. I understood that this meant my father wasn't my biological father. Um, I still made Michael go call Ancestry.com and get get a manager on the phone um, to find out whether they regularly make mistakes. And he was told that they never make mistakes, which is the case. I mean, can you imagine? They would go out of business. They can't. They can't. This is one area where there's no room for error. And so. Um, I, you know, one of the amazing things, Mitchell, is I've thought about the way that every once in a while in our lives we have either a conversation or we overhear something that we don't even understand is very important to us, but we, re we record it almost as if it's um, like seared into us. And it's what happened. I recalled a conversation that I had had with my mother decades earlier. And I should mention my mother and father were both deceased. Um, and there was a conversation I had with my mother um, when I was 25 years old. My father had been dead exactly two years. And in that conversation, she let it slip. I really, truly don't believe she ever intended to do this. Um, I was introducing her to a friend of mine from Philadelphia, and she said, oh, my daughter's conceived in Philadelphia. And it was like, it was involuntary. It right. was reflexive. 
And usually by, by the time you're 25 years old, you've heard, you know, story. your story, whatever that is. We were in Paris or we were right. at Grossinger's or, you know, we were in the backseat of a car. You, you know something. And I said, what do you mean, Philadelphia? And she said, oh, it's not a pretty story. And she proceeded to tell me that I was conceived by artificial insemination. Um, but she made it very, very, very abundantly clear that it was with my father's sperm. She said, um, I used to be in Philadelphia at this institute and then... Your father would, I would call him when I would, found out that I was ovulating and he would come racing down to Philadelphia, presumably to, um, to do that process. And then around the same time, I went back to my half-sister and said, do you remember anything about this? And um, anything about infertility or anything about the way that I was conceived? And she said, no, not really, but you, you really might want to look further into that because I happen to know that there was a practice in those days in which donor sperm was mixed with the intended husband. Your sister sperm. told you that. She did. Yeah, mixed sperm. So I went back to my mother. I was actually, I mean, my denial was such that um, when she said that to me, my, my, my half-sister, who's now not my half-sister, um, is a psychoanalyst. And I remember thinking, like, psychoanalyze that. What Basically what you're saying is you want dad all to yourself. You're saying you wish we weren't related, and I think that's probably true. Um, but I didn't really take it all that seriously. I took it seriously enough that I went back to my mother, and I said, I heard that this was a practice back then. And my mother did not blink, notably did not blink at the expression mixed sperm, which would pretty much make anybody blink if they've never heard it before. And she said... Absolutely not. Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine your father ever would have signed on for something like that? It would have meant that he wouldn't know. He wouldn't have known that his child was Jewish. And knowing my father, as I did, and he was an Orthodox Jew, I completely accepted that, that that would not have been okay with him. And then I closed the door, and it remained absolutely and, and, closed. Right, and you went on to write lots of books yeah. exploring the your own search for for spirituality and your own search. I mean, your whole life has been a search. Yeah. Your whole writing life, yeah. most of your writing life, yeah. has been a yeah. search yeah. for your true identity. In yeah, way or absolutely. And it's also been, um, in much of my work, a way of trying to piece my father together and understand him and puzzle him out because he died when I was so young and just, and he was sad and... He, he was kind of depressed, and I, I didn't know why. So I was always trying to piece him together uh, in my own work and in some way also to um, make, him, make him proud. Um, a friend of mine pointed me to this um, recording, an, uh, an interview of William Maxwell. Uh, oh, I love at the, William the Maxwell. very, very end of his life, um, near the very end of his life. And his mother died when he was very young. And the interviewer said to him, you know, what would you say to your mother if you could speak to your mother now? And he would say, look, I, I've written all these books for you. Wow. And I heard that and I thought that's kind of what I was doing. Well, you know, that raises in my mind um, the signature beauty of what this book is about. I mean, basically, it's not reportage. I mean, it's fascinating in terms of what actually happens. But it's really the way you've been able to take what happens and create truths, or at least also raise questions, big questions, about the role of uh, the role of, of, of genetics versus 
you know, versus, uh, you know, blood versus family. I yeah. mean, what yeah. does that all mean? Yeah. And, and you know, there's certainly people who have um, been from pretty lousy family situations who have been related by blood who wish that they were not related in that way. Yeah. But your outcome, and we don't want to, we don't have to dwell on it, but it turned out really, it turned out really great. It because did. the the, the, the sperm donor that you did find turned out to be a pretty good guy in the it family. Turned out to be a really, a, a wonderful guy. I yeah. mean, I, you know, if you have to find out your donor conceived at the age of 54, I have like the best story ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know a lot of stories that don't turn out that way. And I'm very aware of that. But like the, the bigger, I mean, I was, I kept on thinking as I was writing Inheritance, I just want to do the story justice. You know, it felt like, I mean, aside from it being my story, you know, it, 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 I wanted it to do. I wanted to do it justice because of the story that it was, irrespective of the fact that it was my story. And I had so much that I was trying to make meaning out of and learn because I felt like I suddenly was a student of identity, you know, at its core and otherness. And well, that, that reminds me. I mean, the one thing that really struck me, and I was writing them down as I, you know, as as. I was writing passages from your book as I was reading it. <clears throat> you went to visit so many different people to try to get some clarity about what this meant. You went to visit rabbis. You went to visit, I think, uh, other spiritual leaders who were in your or spiritual influencers who were in your life. But there's one line that sort of captured it. It was when it was writing about uh, when you talked to Rabbi Wolpe. Wolpe, yeah. Yeah, Wolpe, and you, you, what he said to you is basically the crux of all of this. And he said, we all feel as if we're other. Any thinking person knows we are other. And you, meaning you, Danny, actually, and you've actually been to the front lines of otherness. And you've come back with something to teach us. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of your book. I mean, Thank I, you. I, I mean, I could go line after, I could go passage after passage. I'm reminded of what you once said, um, which really, you know, the, the role of a mem- uh, the role of someone who writes memoir. I mean, I think it was a New York Times essay that you wrote or something. Mm-hmm. It may have been recent. I can't remember when I read it. But you were basically bemoaning the fact that people who read your memoir think they know you mm-hmm. completely, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and how not true that is, as opposed to other arts. You know, as opposed to right. someone writing a novel or someone painting. And you actually said in that, I have used my life rather than my life using me to make something more beautiful and refined than I could ever be. Mm. And so in essence, that's really in many, many ways what you've done here and through most of your work. Yeah, um, thank you for reminding me of that because it's so interesting to hear my words coming back at me now from this place where I find myself because, um, you know, uh, one of the reviews that came out this week, I mean, we're having this conversation, the book's been out for two days, you know, and one of the reviews that came out, I think it was in USA Today, the reviewer said, Danny Shapiro is both the best person and the worst person for this to happen to. Interesting. And I really, I mean, and, you know, the worst person because, you know, some people at the age of 54, they found out their father wasn't the biological father, be like, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm good, you know. (laughs) It's a story over a drink somewhere, right? Yeah, it's like in the rearview mirror. Um... Uh, for me and for many people I think it, it would be profound but for, for me it was I've been kind of a student of all this for my whole writing life and um, you know or my, my friend Hannah Tinty when, when I when a wonderful novelist 
when I first told her, I told her very early on, we're really close, and she burst out laughing, which was like the most wonderful response I could have had. And then she called me the next morning and she said, you know, I was thinking, you've been in training for this your whole life. She said, I, I, I started, I was walking my dog and I started hearing the Rocky theme song, <laughs> <laughs> which incidentally takes place in Philadelphia. <laughs> right, exactly. But that, you know, there, there's no accident here that I, I mean, all of my fiction um, in some way or another centered on family secrets. But you always felt, you felt other. I right. mean, in your life, right. I mean, it comes through so clearly. You were an only child. Right. You had a half-sister, but right. really you were, you, you were sort of... Right, and older parents, older and parents. orthodoxy. And, and the orthodox, I mean, the whole the bl- complication. The blonde, blue-eyed orthodox Jew Yeah, I mean, the complication of that. What did, like, it turns out to be Jared Kushner's grandmother said to you uh, about your blondness. Yeah, little blondie, we, we could have used you in the ghetto yeah, to mean, get bread from the Nazis. So I can only imagine the effect that that would always have. Would you yeah. particularly in this highly structured orthodox community of yours in New York City? But, you know, there's a tremendous liberation now because it all makes sense. Exactly. And that's the thing about secrets like this being kept in a family, especially about a child's identity of any kind. Because if a child grows up feeling other and doesn't know why, she has no choice but to kind of turn that on herself. You know, and when, when Rabbi Wolpe said that to me, I'm so glad that you, you read that because... When he said that to me, I mean, it's late in the book, in the narrative when he says it to me, but it was actually pretty early in my writing of it. And I kept that very much front and center. And I just kept on thinking, what am I learning about the human condition? You know, what, what, am, I, what, what am I learning about what it is to be a human being, to be a family, to be a father? Uh, you know, to what, and you said nature, nurture, you know, like, what are we, I mean, I was talking to somebody a few days ago who sort of confronted me and he said are you saying that you saying that blood matters <laughs> and um I was like well I, I can't say that it doesn't right um I think it's like it depends on I mean it's 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 a very very complicated thing and it's very politicized and it's a lot of things but I will say that when I first laid eyes on my biological father for the first time and it was on a YouTube video it wasn't in person and I hadn't met him, I just, had, I just knew who he was, I figured out who he was, I saw something that I had never seen before, and I had never known that I hadn't seen it, which was familiarity, complete and total familiarity. I, he gestured like me, he, I look a lot like him, but it was much more than looking like him. It wasn't, oh, there's my forehead, there's my chin. It was all that, but it was like... I come from this person who's a total stranger. Right, right. And it's so much. Those of you who haven't read the book, when you read the book, you will love those scenes of Danny meeting them for the first time, and the second time in a what did they want an Italian restaurant in New Jersey? Is that where it was? The second time. No, the first time was an Italian restaurant in New Jersey. Oh, in New Jersey. The second time was in Portland. That's right. Right, right, right. But you know. It's so comfortable. It makes so much sense, and it made so much sense for you as right. well. And the other thing that I really loved about it was, you know, just how you how you then were able to shape that, and how you reflected all of what you learned on the page, and how you uh, wove in your husband and your son as well, Mark and Jacob. 
I mean, that was, I mean, you know, that was beautiful to see. And we learned so much from kids. I mean, his reaction was, okay, great. Well, <laughs> so interesting because, like, in his, in his generation, if you think about it, he's 19 years old, he's a right. freshman in college. Um, he's grown up with everything being so much more fluid right. uh, in so many different ways. And what makes a family and, you know, friends who have two moms and friends who right. have two dads and friends who are donor-conceived and, you know, sexuality is fluid and identity is fluid. And so... Um, I don't think it was nothing to him, but it certainly wasn't earth-rocking. And also, I think that is because he didn't know my dad. Right. So my dad, as much as I, I tried for 19 years, or 17 years, he was 17 when he found out, I tried so hard to make my son feel like my father was a part of his life in some way. Because it was important to me. I wanted him to know that he was from this world that I loved. Um, but for him, they were ancestors. They were just, you know, pi pictures on a wall. And our ancestors are basically stories we're told. Right. And stories we tell ourselves. But for you, your father still retained his place in your life. Because he was it my didn't father. Exactly. It didn't diminish. I had to get there. Yeah. And a big part of the journey, and it's, I think it's very much embedded in the book, is that when I first found out, I was so... I was so shocked and I felt so betrayed because I thought, well, wait, my parents, you knew this? You knew this my whole life. So what did that mean? It meant or, di it was or, a, or did you? It was a different time. It was a different well, time. And where hey, they felt they were protecting you. Absolutely. Uh, no, they did what they absolutely were told to do and, and what everybody did. Yeah, not to mention what you bring up in the book is a history of this and a history of, yeah. of, of, of sperm, uh, you know, of... of um, Sperm donors and, and just history reproductive of medicine. reproductive yeah. medicine and what that was like. It was the Wild West. It was like the Wild. It reminded me a little bit of uh, the, the 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 documentary that came out, Identical Strangers. Three Identical the Strangers. Three Identical Strangers, yeah. where people are playing God with other people. In yeah. One way or another. Well, and one of the things those two stories really have in common is that the the rights of the children and the futures of were the children not of. were literally not thought of. It was about, in the case of Three Identical Strangers, I think it was about science and right. progress, and in the case of the world of donor conception, and adoption, too, was what the child doesn't know won't hurt her. And I feel pretty certain now that that is just not the case. Um, you know, secrets don't disappear. They right. just fester and they become... Well, not only that, but even from a purely medical point of view I mean you need you have a right to know the history of that's right what's I, happened in your life when you know, I realized you know. that I had been giving incorrect medical history <laughs> right. for my entire life right. I had to go back to doctors and say actually my father's alive <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and I have a rare eye condition but I don't have heart disease right. <laughs> or any potential or, or addiction or you know it's like right. the, the, the medical burdens that I was walking around with weren't they weren't mine and that can be dangerous and also, for my son, I was giving incorrect medical history. And it also, I think, brought into focus, sharp focus, the relationship with your mother as well, yeah. which, which had been somewhat tumultuous yeah. throughout all of your writings and everything that you've yeah. spoken about. Well, one of the things that I also came to realize is that, so, you know, I'm a storyteller. We're all storytellers. I mean, in a sense, we all supply narratives to make sense of our lives. Yeah, but you do it so much better. Than well, someone like I've me. done it. I mean, I've, there's a record of mine. <laughs> but the what I realized pretty early on is that all of the stories that I told myself about my parents and why they were the way they were and why they were the way they were with me and with each other, that's all still true. 
it just wasn't the whole truth. Right. It's like I put on 3D glasses, but it didn't actually diminish or negate any of those other narratives. Uh, you know, there were, there were other reasons my father was sad, but I think actually this ends up probably being close to the top of the list of that, but it wasn't, it didn't change everything that I had come to understand. It just uh, illuminated it. What's really interesting, too, is coming, you know, I, I, even though this didn't happen to me, the whole idea of secrets and the whole idea of not knowing really what you think you thought you knew about your family and your parents has come up recently with me at a ripe old age as my parents, who are both alive, have become ill. And all of us kids, I have three brothers and sisters, so there are four of us, I've begun to realize how we have all seen our lives as it related to our parents. Different. We might as well have had different parents, yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. in terms of the way that we've dealt with each yeah. other. And I think that must happen in families all, all the time. Because we have this reel running in our head. And my, my, my film, the reel that I have, is different than the reel that my sister has. Right. I, I, you know, when I teach, I'll often say to students, you know, if, if you have like five siblings in a family and they were all writers, you would have five different yeah, it's stories. Like or, in a way, I mean, I've taught, um, you know, Toby Wolf and Jeffrey Wolf's books, you know, uh, Tobias Wolf's This Boy's uh, Life two different, and <laughs> The Duke of Deception. And lives. these are brothers um, yeah. with completely different lives. And right. I've taught them side by side just to, illu- I mean, because they're great books, but right. to illustrate that. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit. I mean, I want everybody to read this book. I don't want to talk too much about it because I want everyone to read it, but I want everyone to know Danny as well, who's not only a writer of memoir, but she's also written five, is it, novels, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And she's taught writing for many, many years in many prestigious places. And she's involved and started something that I am so jealous of that she does every summer in Italy. You want to think of it's called? Sure, that's the, the, the Sirenland Writers Conference oh. that I... Uh, started with my husband and with Hannah Tinti, actually. Um, this, this will be our 13th year. And uh, yeah, each, it's actually every spring we, um, we bring 30 writers uh, to Italy. It's by application. And um, there are three workshops, uh, each of 10 students. And we've had, you know, uh, teachers there ranging from, you know, Richard Russo to Anthony Doerr, um, uh, Liz Gilbert is coming this year. Alex Chi, Alexander Chi is coming. Um, Karen Russell has taught there. A- Andrew Gre- Sean Greer. Um, I just go on. And I'm trying to put a syllabus together to teach a little bit of book selling. That might work <laughs> like, at this writer. Just an uh, evening talk. That's just all. Just an evening talk about book selling <laughs> and about what it means. Uh, but you, you have so. The life of a teacher has been something that's been part of my life as well. Yeah, I mean, the, to me, the, the writer's life is a kind of, there's a, there's a fluidity to um, the, the kind of giving back of teaching in a certain way, the, the, the breaking of the solitude. You know, I mean, I, I do what I, what I do so completely alone in a room. When I was writing Inheritance, I rented an office in town in rural Connecticut where I live, a friend who had moved law offices, so there was an empty building, and I would go upstairs in this empty building to this room where I would sit by myself in this otherwise empty house in this rural town, and there was this beetle in the room, a beetle, 
but somehow stayed alive for months and months and months. And like the Beatle was my company. That's, every once in a while, it was like fly across the room. And I think about that now because I'm on book tour and it's like the opposite, the you know, opposite and it's, it's like people, life and my life and, you know, TV and right. radio and, you know, crowds. And it's the opposite of doing that. And, and, but I think in, in the normal kind of, um, you know, year in, year out of a writer's life, you know, um, knowing that on Mondays you have to like put clothes on and, you know, freshen up and show up and have read other people's work. And when I'm, when I'm teaching, I don't think about myself right. for a second. I mean, the contents yeah, of my own heart and mind are totally trained on my students. the kind of writing that you do, I can imagine if you didn't have that, right. the, the narcissism that would <laughs> develop. Or just the, the, just the, 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 the noise, yeah. you know, this it's, start grinding it's your gears. Totally. But, but also, um, there was another, another, another thought that I had, which was uh, about the fact that you happen to be one of the really wonderful readers as well. You're not only that, and you advocate mm. for mm. other people's work. And yeah. I see it through your social media and Twitter yeah. and what you're saying. And you know, today we lost someone who was really yeah. great, Mary Oliver. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of my day reading the tributes to her right. um, online and Tell in print. Tell me a little print. bit about your feelings about her. And, oh, I mean, Mary Oliver was. I mean, even talking about her in the past tense is painful. Um, such a bright soul, you know, someone who wasn't afraid to um, be spiritual in her work. I wasn't, um, it, it, you know, wasn't afraid that that would be out of fashion somehow, or that um, a kind of, I mean, we use earnestness in a in a in a negative way. Um, but there, there is this um, kind of earnestness about the natural world and about beauty and about um, the big themes, like unafraid to, um, to tackle the biggest themes in the most in particular, simple, simple particular you know, granular kind of way. And, and I always also loved her whole connection with nature yeah. and when she writes about the natural world. I mean, she's able to, as you say, draw it down to that. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, I think she makes you a better person when you yeah, read her. Yeah, no, she, it's a great loss. And, and whenever we lose people like that, I think our world is lessened. I mean, you and I spoke once about, you know, the, the shoulders we stand on, the people who mean a lot to us. And you once gave me a novel and I'm forgetting his last name is Leon. No, um, um, the title of the novel is the final opus of Leon Solomon, right. and the writer's name is Jerome Bedanis. Right. And I read it, and it was amazing. Yeah. And, and he was one of your teachers. He I was think. a teacher. He was a mentor. He was right. a dear friend. And he died. It was his first novel. He wrote his first novel in his early fifties. Right. And then he dropped dead, and of a heart attack, walking up the hill at Sarah Lawrence College where he was teaching. And. Um, that to me, like when you loved that book, and we talked about maybe doing something, we should, we should still do something like that. We still should. Actually. Because there's something about um, when there's the possibility of reintroducing a writer. It's a kind of resurrection. Completely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just did one of those by the book um, New York Times book review. Yeah things where they ask writers about what's on your nightstand. And well, I loved what, I, that was I very I gave so helpful. much thought to it because right. I, I, well, I mean, because you're recommending books and people are really going to pay attention to that. And But I wanted to, 
I mean, there there was a writer, uh, actually a sculptor, a, an artist, um, who I, I never knew. We actually crossed paths at Igato when she was sort of an older woman, and I was a very young writer, and she completely intimidated me. Her name is Anne Truitt. And oh, she's, yes, and she's written a couple She's written of these glorious books, books yeah. about the creative process. Right. Um, but she's not... Um, I mean, her books are... They're pressed from hand to hand to hand, but when there's a list of great books about the creative process, her books aren't usually on there, right. um, just simply because they didn't come out at the right moment, you know, or... or well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I, as a bookseller, I can walk around the store, and I, there are books that I bring in and books that we carry that we might not sell. Right. And, That's you know, what no makes matter, this such a great bookstore. Well, well, but I mean, it's just the kind of thing that you ask yourself, and, the, and once they were in fashion, you yes. know, and once then they fell out yes. of fashion. Yes. And then they may come back into fashion. Yeah. It's a very it's a very interesting thing. And it really you have to actually put something in someone's hand. Yeah. So how did how did your literary life start? I mean, was it how did you become such a reader? Was it that you were an only child? Yeah, I mean I became reading? a reader because I was an only child because my parents were pretty much never around. Um, and because we were observant Jews, so there was Sabbath. There was Sabbath. There was Sabbath. <laughs> and um, that was oh, a very say that long again the way you just said it. <laughs> um, I mean, the way we said it when I was growing up was Shabbos. Right. Um, no, but I mean, yeah, like Sabbath, like Sabbath. Like you know, I like it was a. Ugh. Well, and it was, uh, it, it. There was nothing to do. Right. Uh, I would go to synagogue with my father, which I loved to do because I loved to be with him. But there was nothing to do. Couldn't right. ride my bike. You couldn't get into a car. Um, couldn't play the piano. Couldn't write. Um, but you couldn't could watch read. TV. But you could read. And so, you know, this thing that for me was um, kind of the bane of my existence as a kid where I would watch all my friends out the window zooming by on their bicycles and having, you know, just going about their regular lives, um, it turned out to be something that was tremendously, tremendously valuable for me. And those early books, do you remember one that struck you? I just read everything. You read everything. I read everything. I mean, in, in the Times... I answered that question with Judy Bloom, with Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, because that really was the book that blinked the lights on for me of like, oh, this other, someone else in the world feels this way, which is the greatest gift that I think, um, you know, a writer can give a reader, you know, is the, the piercing of the solitude. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then, mm-hmm. so you, li- you were living in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and you then went to school in the New York area as well, right? I went to Sarah Lawrence. You went to Sarah Lawrence. So you've stayed in that area most really of have. your life. yeah. Yeah. And and your husband Michael is a he wonderful was, person who's a who's a yeah. journalist and he's now a filmmaker as yes. well. Yeah. Yeah. And we live in rural Connecticut, which is not what I ever thought I would ever do. I thought you'd have to like drag me kicking and screaming through. No, but York you're City. terrific on Instagram showing us rural Connecticut. I love I I enjoy <laughs> it. Well I love where I live. I love your dogs, <laughs> the snow outside. Um, but Jacob went West, right? No, he goes to Wesleyan. Oh, I thought he went. I thought he was out in California. No, he. If he hadn't, Wesleyan was his first choice, and if he hadn't been accepted there, I think he would have gone far, far away, because all the other schools he liked were far away. But the school that he went to, in fact, is an hour from home, which is really nice from a parental point of view. Yeah. So now that you've done this, um, what came from this is something that I'm very excited about, which is a podcast that you're starting. Yes. Really soon, yes. and it'll be in February. February fourteenth, Valentine's Day. And it can be Day. downloaded. We're all it can be it can are. be downloaded as of now. Apple it's, it's up there. A- Apple, um, 
Um, the so iHeartRadio I app. So um, after you subscribe to The Literary Life, you will subscribe to, to Family, family Secrets. Secrets. The tagline of Family Secrets is the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. And you already have a guest. You have a lot of people already in the can, so to speak. We have, we have a season, a 10-episode season. And the first episode is me telling my story. And all the other episodes are just, I'm so excited about them. They're, they're, I mean, the, the, I think because I have just had this experience myself as a host and as someone interviewing, it makes me able to um, connect. To draw other people and to, Yeah, and you know, that it's not, there's not... Oh, I think this is going to be huge. I think once you begin it, you're, it's going to be a magnet for people who've got one secret left. They're yeah. going to be Well, there's having the secrets, and then there's and the, the, the being able to tell the story of yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Um, well, I'm sure you'll draw them out. I, I want to end just a little bit with a, a quote about the book from a writer that I love, Andre Asimov. Uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful quote. And it's about, it's about Danny's new book. Um, and he says, Identity is frail business. And in her searing story, Danny Shapiro makes the most disquieting discovery that everything, from her lineage to her father, down to her very own sense of self, is an astounding error. How do we live with ourselves after finding we are not who we thought we were? The answer is not disquieting, it is beautiful. And that's exactly the way I felt about it. Danny, thank you very much for being on The Literary Life, and I wish thank you the best of luck Thank this. you, Mitchell. It's and such a pleasure. Until next time. I hope you like what you heard, and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also, give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.